This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. You know, there's so many stories that have kind of like just slipped by me because, of course, we've been pretty obsessed with what's going on in the Middle East. For a period of time, we were pretty obsessed with what we saw happening in Washington with a Congress that looks, for the most part, pretty dysfunctional. I think there's been some quieting of all that, primarily because uh, the new Speaker of the House, he apparently has quite a command over different parts of his Republican caucus, which is refreshing. Because I don't know that Kevin McCarthy did. I know that Paul Ryan didn't. And it's good to see. Uh, and this guy seems to be doing it all with a great deal of of spiritual. And that, of course, is going to please me. But there was some kind of crazy news that I haven't gotten around to. And one of the most crazy newses, newses was the world population figure is in. I think we've like even stopped looking at stuff like that because it just seems so incredible. So my question to you is, do you feel crowded? Because the U.S. Census Bureau just estimated that the population of the world, the whole world, just passed 8 billion people. And they're living a lot longer, which is why the fact that there are fewer births doesn't seem to be slowing down the population growth. The global population exceeded the $8 billion, $8 billion, $8 billion number threshold on September 26th, according to a precise date that the agency says, well, that may be the actual date, and you, know, you can take that with a grain of salt. The United Nations estimated the number was passed 10 months ago, having declared November 22nd, 2022, the day of 8 billion. Well, that's over a year ago. And of course, it's due to the fact that Countries count their people differently, and some countries don't count them at all. Some countries don't have systems that record the birth or the death of their citizens. And I'm talking about some pretty populous countries like India, Nigeria. They don't have censuses in a 10-year period like we do. We have census every decade. So the world continues to grow. We went from 6 billion to 8 billion since the turn of the millennium. And then I guess we slowed down. We did double the population between 1960 and 2000. And of course, we're living much longer, or at least it seems as though the trend is to the median age around the world. Because you see, we think in terms of America, right? Like here, people live into their 80s, 90s, and 100s. We see it a lot, and in certain other countries. But the global median age, how, you know, what the majority of people what their age is, is now 32, and it's going up. They're saying it should be continuing an upward trend 
towards 39 in the year 2060. Now, places like Canada, countries like Canada, they've been aging with a declining older age mortality, but countries like Nigeria have seen dramatic declines in the death of children under five, which is a good thing. And fertility rates, the, you know, that's what Alex Berenson talks about and what Naomi Wolf, Dr. Wolf talks about. The rate of births per women of childbearing age are declining, which means they continue to fall below replacement level in a lot of the world. And that contributes to this trend of you know, slower increases in population growth. Now, of course, the minimum number of births necessary to replace both the father and mother and keep like a neutral world population is 2.1. I know, I can't figure it out either. About three quarters of people now live in countries with fertility rates around or below that level. The countries with fertility rates around replacement level include India, Tunisia, and Argentina. I guess they really... Uh... They're really having more fun in those places. About 15% of people live in places with fertility rates below the replacement level. The countries with low fertility rates include Brazil, Mexico, really, I'm surprised, the US and Sweden, while those with very low fertility rates include China. Well, that's because they were told they couldn't have the babies. Uh, South Korea and Spain. Israel, Ethiopia, and Papua New Guinea rank among countries with higher than replacement fertility rates of up to five. And such countries have almost one quarter of the world's population. Only about 4% of the world's population lives in countries with fertility rates above five, and all of them are in the continent of Africa. So while you see these global, why I bring this up is because we are so busy looking at the proverbial shiny things these days, whether it's a war in the Middle East or whether it's uh, the, the dysfunction in, in our nation's capital or it's the dysfunction in... Uh, Europe, wh whatever it is, or it's Russia invading Ukraine, or it's Syria killing its own people, whatever you're looking at means we're not looking at things like population growth, and we're not looking at things like, is there a problem? Are there places where the fertility rate is dropping and has become so low that there may, in fact, be a real issue for Western civilization? Because I believe there is, and I believe that's going to continue. <coughs> and I'm not so sure that the uh, COVID shot, the COVID jab, didn't contribute to that, not just here, but in other countries. But they were not allowed to talk about that. Don't be a conspiratorialist, okay? Don't do it. Anyway, stay right where you are. I'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. So it's not New Year's, but it is a resolution that um, I've just, I just have grown weary 
of pretending that everything is going to be all right. It won't be all right unless we take a position, take a stand. And that's 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 what it's going to take, you know. I I get it. I get it that we would like the softer, easier way. But that's not going to happen. We've gone too far. We've gone past the point of really no return. And now we're going to have to stand for something. People who won't stand for anything, you know, won't stand for something, will fall for anything. And that's where we ended up. Now, the idea that we tolerated, I I, I want you to think about this for a minute. And I really have about 20 hours worth of material that I have to get to in the course of the next couple of days, right? We tolerated the most insidious stuff for the last two decades, right? We kept allowing people to tell us that um, if, if we had any disagreements, that one of us was wrong and a bigot or a racist and the other one was a, an oppressed victim. And we kept shaking our heads and saying, okay, all right, well, well I, guess, I guess we'll have to go with that. No, we don't have to go with that. We really don't. It's just not true. I'm not a bigot because I think that, uh, you know, that people who are born with uh, female body parts are females. It doesn't make me a bigot. It just makes me like actually following the science. But of course, you know, I've been called enough names that it doesn't bother me anymore. Try that with young people who are afraid, you know, they don't stand up for what's right anyway. And tell them, oh, you know what? Um, If you say that, we're going to presume that you're a bigot. And watch how quickly they succumb to changing. And that's where we are. And anybody who thinks that this goes away softly, it doesn't. It's going to be a real battle royale. And that's why we have to be prepared. We really do. We have to, um, it's not, it's no longer about Donald Trump. It's no longer about, you know, diversity and, and all this other nonsense that we've been told it's all about. No, no. What it's actually about, it's actually about the demise of a great nation. And they really want this great nation to disappear off the face of the earth. And I don't know why. I've been trying to figure that out for the last, I don't know, two years at least, maybe longer, but definitely for the last two years. Like, why would you hate this country so much? A country that other people would risk their lives to get to. And yet you can't stand it. So much so that you're willing to throw it down the the drain. You know, uh, arrest the president, to do this, do that. You, you just don't care. You don't care about this country. You don't like it. You don't want to save it, which leaves it to people like me and you. You know, I, I'm going to save it. I'm going to do my best or die trying, right? I, I, I have nowhere to go. I don't know about the rest of you, but I have nowhere to go. There's no other country on this planet that I desire living in There isn't even another state in this country that I desire living in. So I got to fight. And and you're either with me or you're again me. 
that's how that's how I figure. And I know that a lot of people are with me. A lot of people have, you know, definitely uh, made their frustration known. And they are hoping that there's enough of us left to make this okay, to get it right, to leave something to future generations that's worth having, you know? Because I, I owe it to my children and my grandchildren, particularly my grandchildren, to make sure that there's something left when I'm gone. And I don't, you know, I don't take that lightly. And neither should you. Let me take a quick break. I'll be right back. Well, I still have a lot to say about the war in the Middle East, and I probably will say some of it today in this podcast. But I have to tell you, there's some other places around the world that are causing me great concern because, once again, we don't get a fair representation of what life is like in other countries. It's always painted as some kind of utopian and holier-than-thou version of, well, democratic socialism or whatever they want to call it. So I saw a great piece on Venezuela because, I mean, obviously, Venezuela is in the news, right? And years and years ago, I visited Caracas, which is the capital of Venezuela. And I did it because my mother was totally fascinated by Venezuela. She had made a couple of trips there during her 20s and 30s and always spoke about it as one of the most beautiful and one of the most uh, intelligent and ancient civilizations in South America. I don't know if I really ever believed that, but I know that she had such a fascination with the country that I decided I would go there. And I met a lot of people, many people who were very, very nice. And a lot of those people are not alive any longer. And some of those people are now here stateside. And when I asked about somebody recently, I was told that they had died, that they had been kidnapped, and they were either brutally murdered or they were in a car chase and there was an accident. I, I can't really remember because it was a while ago. And you hear those stories all the time. And people in Venezuela hear those stories so frequently that they don't even make much ado about them. They don't even talk about things with any kind of sadness. So you tell a story about a lost friend who died in a car crash or died in a chase or died because they were kidnapped, and then you go for a beer because that's the Venezuela that exists. So it's easy to look at the news with hundreds upon thousands of Venezuelan migrants flooding into the U.S. over the last couple of years and think, hey, there must be something terribly, horribly wrong, and it must have just happened in Venezuela. But that isn't true. This exodus is the result of decades of corruption and violence. And what's really remarkable isn't how many people are leaving, but why so many people stay. Brutal murders of young people doesn't even phase them. Uh, Venezuelans have learned to survive. When you live in a society where the price of life is cheap, it's not a big deal when awful things happen. Everyone in Caracas knows at least one person who's been kidnapped. It's just a part of life, like, uh, you know, getting called for jury duty. You're kidnapped on a Monday. They hand you back on a Wednesday. You take a couple of days to get your affairs in order. And then you're back to work the following Monday. And people 
who come from Venezuela or who left the country maybe 40, 50 years ago when they um, grow up enough to know that this isn't really life as they wanted it. Um, but people go back. They go back to see their parents, their grandparents, and people who still live there, old friends that they knew when they were children. And a lot of people spent the holidays in Venezuela with their families. But by 2005, you really didn't want to go back for a visit because you had to be afraid when you were there. And even if you um, are a comedian, like the gentleman who wrote an article in the Free Press about going and visiting Venezuela, he was from Venezuela, or at least his parents were. His name is Francis Foster, and he's a stand-up comic. But even he said, this place is not what I even remember. And as funny as uh, Gallo's humors might be, it's it's like a defense mechanism. And all the people there, friends and family members, that's how they survive. He said not long before he stopped going to Venezuela, his friend Ernesto was robbed at gunpoint on a busy street in Caracas. He was at an ATM machine, and he felt a gun shoved into his back. And somebody said, take everything out of your bank account, any stupidity from you, and I'll put a bullet through your spine, and you'll never walk again. Okay, that might move you. Ernesto took a deep breath because every Venezuelan knows what you do in these circumstances. It gets drilled into you from the time you're a little kid. It's one of the many lessons you have to learn if you want to survive in Caracas. So he gave them what they wanted, and then he just kind of hoped for the best. When he turned to see his assailants making a pretty, you know, calm, unhurried retreat, he realized that they were police officers. They even drove away in a police car, not at all concerned with the dozens of witnesses who saw them rob a civilian in broad daylight. And a few months later, he said, when I ran into Ernesto at a party where he was telling the crowd about the time he got mugged by cops, his audience roared with laughter. It was like he was a stand-up comic, and this was his routine. He was in his element. He was basking in the glow of an appreciative crowd. It reminded me of the famous line by the English poet Thomas Gray, moody, madness, laughing wild amid severest woe. Venezuelans have a saying, a llorar al valle. Roughly translated, it means go and cry to the valley. When no one will listen to your problems, you go and cry to the valley. But it's the only place, that's the only thing that'll listen. There have been a lot of tears shed to metaphorical valleys up and down the country of Venezuela, whether it's families with relatives who have been murdered by armed criminals or loved ones who have disappeared because they dared to criticize the regime. More than 7 million Venezuelans have left the country just as of the summer this year, fleeing their homeland to escape poverty and hyperinflation, violence, and seemingly endless political corruption. And last month, President Biden granted temporary legal status to the 472,000 migrant Venezuelans already living in the U.S., which basically protects them from deportation for at least the next year and a half. But leaving home was never the first choice for most of them. And you can sense the yearning for what's been lost in their wonderfully dark sense of humor. There's a guy I know who fled Venezuela, and when I asked his favorite thing about living in America, 
he always says two words, Coca-Cola. Thanks to a diet of processed food and refined sugar, his physique is far more American than Venezuelan. And we joke that he desperately needs to return to his home country for a few months to do the communism fat camp. Other people who still live in Venezuela, well, they got type 2 diabetes. And, of course, it's the communism diet. Why, he still has his original toes. It's amazing what can be achieved when you can't afford to eat and the tap water has more parasites than the ruling class. Another person, a journalist, who wrote pieces criticizing Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, and it was promptly threatened by the regime's thugs, they informed him in unflinching detail what would happen to him if he continued to publicly voice his opinions. So he fled in terror to Uruguay. But when you get a hold of him, he isn't grateful to have escaped. He misses home. And he insists that Uruguay is one of the most boring countries on the planet. I'm surrounded by cows, he complained. Caracas may be one of the murder capitals of the world. 90% of the nation lives in poverty, according to the National Survey of Living Conditions. One in three Venezuelan children suffer from malnutrition. That's according to the National Academy of Medicine. Smuggling, whether it's gas, food, or human beings, represents 20% of the Venezuelan economy. But hey, at least it's exciting. And there's more to do there than stare at cows. A general election is happening in Venezuela early next year, and there are already murmurs that Maduro could be unseated, ending almost a quarter century of socialist government. But I wouldn't be too optimistic. The corruption in Venezuela is a cancer, and it's metastasized over the last several decades. You can love Venezuela. You could want to return someday. But have faith that the country will have a fair and honest election in 2024. Well, you can have about as much faith in that as you believe the communist diet is healthy and actually is what saved the toes of the journalist. Not long ago, an old friend named Henry flew from Venezuela to visit another friend in London. Their parents, who are now both in their mid-70s, joined them for dinner, and during one of Henry's stories, uh, one of the dads leaned in close and said, I'm sorry, Henry, would you mind speaking up? I'm getting older, and I can't hear you. Henry just sighed. My apologies, he said. In Venezuela, we're just used to whispering. Those are the subtle ways that authoritarianism chips away at you. You don't even realize anymore that every conversation is a whisper. It becomes rote, like when you're taught to look both ways before crossing the street and you don't even think about it anymore. You know what the repercussions will be if you step out of line. You whisper because it's a choice between life or death. But the fear and the tears always give way to laughter again for the Venezuelans because that's how they cope. At dinner... They talk about how el Bolivar Fuerte, the Venezuelan currency, roughly translated as the strong Bolivar, is on the decline yet again. The exchange rate is around 0.028 in U.S. dollars. Toilet paper is now worth more than the Bolivar Fuerte. And you can't replace toilet paper with Bolivar, although I'm sure someone has tried. You can laugh about the state of affairs, but it's the way you laugh about an old relative whose life has fallen apart 
who's living on the streets and doing drugs, and you're not sure how to help her anymore. The country everybody knew from their childhood no longer exists. It only lives on in their memories. And when they bump into other Venezuelans, well, they share stories of the country they used to love, the places they used to visit, and the people they used to know. And most importantly, they laugh. That kind of soul-cleansing, cathartic laughter that comes from people finding a way to negotiate a path through shared trauma. And it's really the only thing that prevents them from spending all of their lives crying in the valley. But of course, to hear American college students tell it, it would be wonderful to live in a socialist country. We should all share everything. What they don't understand is what you just heard me talking about. And perhaps I'm glad that they don't understand it because it proves that this is still the greatest nation on earth. So I remember a while back, I told you that I went to see this Chinese dance troupe called Shen Yun. And Shen Yun's being blocked in South Korea, which I would think is proof that the regime of China, their influence tactics have worked. Because when this happens repeatedly, people get the idea that submitting to the Communist Party's demands is natural and necessary, and it becomes routine. So this is another story about what communist slash socialist slash totalitarian regimes really do to the people who live there. Whether Shen Yun can ultimately perform in South Korea is a litmus test for whether South Korea is truly an ally to the United States. The South Korean government does not allow the U.S. company Shen Yun to perform in South Korea. That means that many other countries may see South Korea as unreliable. While Shen Yun performs in top venues around the world, including New York's Lincoln Center, and I saw it down here at one of our theaters of the performing arts, and uh, Paris, it's playing in the Palisade des Congrès, in South Korea, the top theaters are tied to the government. And as a result, the CCP has targeted the theaters directly, as well as through the South Korean government. Threats from Beijing have ranged from visa blackmail to economic damage and diplomatic blowback since the performing arts company's inception in 2006 with Chinese officials making visits or calls or sending letters to exert pressure. In 2009, the Universal Arts Center in Seoul pulled out of a contract 12 days before Shen Yun was scheduled to perform. Local organizers later learned that the Chinese embassy had threatened not to issue Chinese visas to venue staff and the Universal Arts Center Performing Arts Troupe. We're not trying to make things difficult for Shen Yun, but the Chinese government is going to inflict tens to hundreds of billions of dollars in damage to us. So what can we do, Bohe Park, then the retired VP of the Tongo Foundation said, which owns the theater. And he later told Shen Yun's local presenters, adding that he wished Shen Yun great success. In one incident that received international attention back in 2016, the Chinese embassy wrote at least twice to the Korean broadcasting system, which owns the KBS Hall venue in Seoul, demanding that it cancel a contract with Shen Yun ahead of the company's performance there. 
KBS, as the largest national public broadcaster, had established pretty friendly cooperative relationship with media, such as CCTV, the Chinese official said, and according to one of the letters dated in January that we have now obtained. They went on to ask the venue to deny Shenyun access on the basis of the China-Korea relationship, and the broadcaster complied, despite thousands of tickets having already been sold. In the legal battle that ensued, a court in Seoul initially ruled in Shenyun's favor, but overturned the decision just two days prior to the performance, saying that the possible Chinese economic backlash to KBS far outweighed whatever reputational and financial harm the company would suffer. Louis An, San Francisco-based Shenyun's coordinator for South Korea, said the CCP exerted strong pressure behind the scenes that interfered with the court decision. The case of KBS was one of a litany of abrupt cancellations and U-turn decisions from local theaters that the New York Arts Company has encountered in the country during its world tours over the past 17 years. In December of 2012, as members of the Seoul Metropolitan Council in Seoul collected signatures to support Shenyun's bid to perform at the Shijong Center, Seoul's Deputy Mayor of Political Affairs, Kim Young-ju, told the local Shenyun organizers that the city decided to block the performance considering the relationship between Korea and China and that signing the recommendation letter would be of no use. Then-Council Member Jung Chan Lee later recounted to the local Shenyun presenters. The rental bill, well, it fell through to Mr. Lee's deep disappointment. But while there were challenges all along, the year 2022 marked a turning point for the worse. In all, 13 local government-affiliated theaters in South Korea eventually turned their backs on Shenyun, including one that had a 10-year relationship with the company. The Incheon Culture and Arts Center denied Shenyun a venue hiring application for a February 2023 performance after the possible deterioration of relations with China was brought up in an internal meeting at City Hall, according to the organizers. Chinese officials have long enjoyed the Korean government following their orders, Mr. An said. They always bow to them, he said of past Korean officials. The weak point of a free democracy. Look, the anxiety from local officials and theater staff isn't surprising to Lee Ji Young, a professor of China studies at the Deju-based Kim Young University. The fear of losing their jobs, hurting diplomatic relations with China, or incurring financial losses has resulted in self-censorship, he said. All Korean society has to study China's face in their actions, he said. In early 2019, when Shenyun presenters contacted the Shenzhen Center, Seoul's largest arts and cultural center, about a potential rental, the manager said he would be fired if he approved the contract. The Korean government was aware of the issue, and Sejong Center wasn't authorized to grant approval to Shenyun without permission from the top. Chinese agents study closely the weak point of a free democracy, he said. They concentrate on them, and it works. 
The situation in South Korea has drawn international attention. The U.S. State Department, in three separate reports, two international religious freedom reports, and a human rights report on South Korea, highlighted the issue of South Korea blocking Shenyang's performances and the Chinese Communist Party's influence. The theater acted after it received a letter from the Chinese embassy, the State Department wrote, referring to Shenyun being canceled at KBS Hall. In August, Representative Michelle Steele, the representative from California, wrote to Mr. Yun saying she was alarmed to hear that there are attempts by the CCP to exert influence to prevent the performances in the Republic of Korea. Ms. Steele wrote that the Republic of Korea as a free and democratic nation has been one of the United States' most important allies in promoting mankind's shared values. It is the duty of democratic governments to defend freedom in the face of oppression, she said. Mr. Lee, who has studied Chinese politics and economy in depth, has said that the seeing the extent of Chinese influence in his country breaks his heart. He wants to see the tacit silence of Chinese interference, as is on display in Shenyun's roadblocks in South Korea, publicized to the South Korean populace. If we lose our freedom, then we lose everything, he said. And I couldn't agree more, because as our eyes are focused on what's happening in the Middle East, we have to understand that we never do get the whole story or even most of the story from the media, whether it's covering the Chinese Communist Party's influence on democratic countries or anything else. It's just shameful. And of course, what's been most shameful lately is watching our own university system literally promote the most low-class and immoral behavior by students on campus. Finally, a couple of colleges are standing up to this. Brandeis has been the first college to refuse to allow uh, these Students for Justice for Palestine organizations and some of these other very, very violent groups calling for the extermination of Jews in Israel. Well, they've been kind of banned, and that's a good thing. But just now, Columbia actually disbanded SJP and another organization for breaking the rules. Well, guess what? They've been breaking those rules for years. It wasn't until some Jewish students were really frightened and brought in the big guns, and by that I mean donors to the college's endowments, that anything was done about it. Starting on October 7th, over two years of witnessing other genocidal attacks of the Palestinian people, guess what happened? People started pushing back a little bit, and I think it's about time. Maybe too late? I hope not. But after years of vowing to destroy Israel, Iran now faces a dilemma. Because Iran understands that Israel is bent on crushing Hamas, their ally. Tehran has to decide whether it and the proxy militias that it arms and trains are going to live up to their fiery rhetoric. They told us they would prioritize genocide, and I just want to see if they actually follow through for once. As the writer David Berg put it in the New York Times, 
poor, beleaguered Iran faces their own heartbreaking Sophie's Choice. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty interesting take on it all. But we're beginning to see interesting takes all over our country and certainly all over the European countries as well. There was an amazing story out of Berkeley. Graduate students at Berkeley were preparing to go on a hunger strike to protest the suspension of their favorite colonial studies teacher, Yvonne Del Valle. The students even stormed a Cal-USC football game this week and sat on the green as part of their protest. What were her crimes, if you can even call it that? She is accused of harassing another professor. Let me just present this the way it was straight from the local press. In an interview with KQED, Del Valle acknowledged some of the behavior described in the investigative reports, including keying Clover's car, vandalizing the area outside his apartment door, contacting his friends, posting an image of his partner online, and leaving messages outside the home of his mother. Those messages included one that said, I raised a psychopath, according to the university's investigative reports. She has also acknowledged in the report calling Clover's office phone line at least 10 times within 90 minutes. Throughout each official investigation, Del Valle maintains that her actions were the result of being hacked and that she was not receiving the support she needed. I did right outside his door, here lives a pervert. I did that. And again, I'm not proud, she said. If I had the opportunity to do things differently, I would do them differently. Oh my goodness, what is this all about? When I tell you these stories, you've got to scratch your head and think to yourself, what is it like to be an American Jew now and know that 48% of your peers want people like you dead? That's right. As of October 23rd, 64% of 18 to 24-year-olds think what happened on October 7th was a terrorist attack. 77% think it's true that Hamas terrorists killed Israeli it's true that Hamas terrorists killed 1,200 Israeli civilians by shooting them, raping, and beheading people, including whole families, kids, and babies. But when asked, in this conflict, do you side more with Israel or Hamas? 48% said Hamas. I'm not surprised. I'm not. And you shouldn't be either. When you get deans of gender studies and feminism and you have to hear about all this intersectionality, then you know that that whole Gen Z group worships identity categories and the distinction of the oppressor and the oppressed. They're submerged in it every day. The oppressor is always wrong and the oppressed are always right. And they've been trained to identify and slot people based on their identities alone. The cheering of Hamas among people of that age on college campuses might seem shocking to people my age, but it doesn't shock my kids. At the college campus, the tiny group of people who publicly celebrated the overturning of Roe v. Wade were mocked mercilessly. And so, even a terrorist group's mass murder of innocent Jews, babies, grandmothers, entire families can't defeat the generation's Manichean belief system. Jews are the worst, and October 7th is about justifiable revenge. Well, that does it for me. All I can tell you is, don't forget to keep on listening. 
And my plan is to be back here tomorrow at three o'clock, if it be his will and he delays his coming. What lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And then may God bless you and may God bless the USA. May God bless Israel and may God bless us all. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.